Hello there, I'm Patrick Strofe. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today, I'm joined by Sander Zagzebski, partner of the Corporate and Business Practices Group of Greenspoon Martyr. Greenspoon Martyr is a full-service business law firm with over 200 attorneys in 26 locations throughout the United States and has been ranked consistently among American lawyers Amlaw 200 as one of the top law firms in the country since 2015. Sander wrote an article back in May for C-Suite Quarterly, and it had the subtitle, Taking Advantage of the Disruptive Opportunities During Coronavirus Pandemic. Now, this was one of the first articles out there that was pointing to a silver lining in the pandemic. And I'm pleased to have Sandra here as my guest to discuss this piece, which is both, it will be linked on our, on our show notes, but it is contrary to conventional wisdom. And when you consider the time that this came out, the first week of May, we were just getting you know, into that settle in place. The fatigue was coming in. The stock market may have been bouncing off of the March lows, but still there was a lot of uncertainty. And Sanders' article has a lot more credibility now because since that came out in May, there have been at least a dozen other prominent authors out there putting out very similar predictions for not just economic recovery, but recovery in mergers and acquisitions. And so I'm pleased to have Sander here. Sander, welcome to join to the podcast today. Thank you, Patrick. Appreciate the invite. Lawyers love listening to themselves speak, and I'm no different. So thanks for having me. Well, that's why we're not short on content with you. Now, before we get into this article and, and, and how you saw the trend, which is a unique way that you looked at it, let's talk about yourself real quick. Okay, How did you get to this point in your career? Yeah, I'm a, I've been practicing as a corporate securities M&A private equity lawyer for 23 years. Uh, I started at large, a large regional firm and a large international firm, but I've also run my own law firm for six and a half years. And so uh, I, I more recently kind of bounced back up the food chain a little bit and joined Greenspoon Martyr, which is a, an Amlaw 200 firm, meaning it's one of the 200 largest law firms in the country. And uh, I, I'm, you know, one of the corporate partners and I head up the corporate practice on the West Coast. It's, it's you know, I got here, I guess, in large part because I'm a little bit adventurous. Uh, I like to try new things. And one of the things that we do very well is is we we sort of follow the entrepreneurs and and uh, you know try to try to try to harness their entrepreneurial spirit, and so we we get involved in industries that maybe some of our competitors don't pay as much attention to technology that is pretty saturated, but but you know hospitality, uh, entertainment, new media, cannabis. Uh, we're we're probably we probably have the largest cannabis practice of any of the MLO 200 firms, you know, blockchain digital assets. I mean, we try to, you know, it's, it's, it's more fun to go where the action is. And these are some of the places where the action is. So, uh, but from a, from a skill set level, we are industry agnostic and I do, you know, I do probably 40, 50% mergers and acquisitions in my, in, you know, in a given year, maybe a third capital raising transactions. And, um, you know, the rest is kind of a, a mix of, Joint ventures, strategic alliances, other kind of significant corporate matters that don't fit neatly within one of those two boxes of, you know, PE, M&A, capital markets type stuff. It's safe to say that Green Spoon Martyr is 
not a boutique, but it's got that feel and responsiveness and passion of a boutique, but with all the leverage and all the services and all the resources of the larger firms. Absolutely. I love it when you sell me. Uh, well, let's go over, let's transition over to, to your piece, okay? Because sure. that was one of the other predictors out there. The, the reflex prediction out there was there's going to be just the M&A field will be exclusively distressed, you know, bankruptcies and distressed assets out there. And that's all that we're going to see across the landscape. And in your piece, you go ahead and you go contrary to conventional wisdom. And you just say, you know, unlike what a lot of people are saying, this COVID-19, this is not a black swan. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you do this uniquely because, again, you didn't have some positive thinking, hope, hopeful aspirations out there. You actually looked at the past and found key, key markers in the past that could lead to what could happen in the future. So talk about that, please. Well, sure. You know, it's, you know I've been doing this long enough that, uh, you know, I certainly can still remember the, the financial crisis of 08 and 09 and can draw parallels that I'm sure many others are drawing as well, uh, you know, with the current situation. And, you know, Professor... Nassim Taleb, who actually coined the phrase the black swan in his book that came out, I believe, around the time of the financial crisis. I think it was either right before or, or you know, even during the financial crisis. Um, you know, this, this term black swan has kind of become something that means a little bit, it means whatever you want it to mean, right? It's, it's, it, 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 and a lot of people use it as just sort of a, you know, what's the black swan event of, of this year? Well, Taleb himself, you know, the idea of the black swan is that it's a, it's a highly unusual event. It's something that's, that's really unforeseen and, and, and one that can have very, very dramatic consequences. And I think, think from his perspective, as an investor, he's looking at it more from the uh, perspective of risk, right? Uh, tail risk and, and the like. But he's, he, I, I, I was kind of, I found it curious because I saw him talking about uh, the coronavirus and the government's responses to the coronavirus, and he resisted calling it a black swan. And, and the reason was, he said, look, a pandemic is a highly predictable event. We, we've had these before. We know what the, these things are all about. So in other words, he sort of chafed at the notion that this would be thrown in as a, as a black swan. Now, I, part of the, his perspective there, candidly, may have been because he has previously written about the, the risk of a global pandemic and kind of lumps himself in with Bill Gates and some others who have talked about a, a pandemic as, as something that systems, you know, his whole concept, I, I'm not, I haven't read his, all of his books, but this whole anti-fragile concept where you, right, you want to build some robustness into systems, you know, one of his observations is that, hey, you know, we have this interconnected global economy with supply chains and the like, and it doesn't take a whole lot, you know, for it all to come crashing down. But from my perspective, you know, looking at the looking at the parallels between the financial crisis of 08 and 09 and the current situation, once shutdowns started to happen, it seemed obvious to me that there was going to be a dramatic economic effect, and we could look to 08 and 09 to maybe remind us about what was going to come next. So that's that's kind of the premise there. I'm not sure I really I really think too much about whether it would be called a white swan versus a black swan. You know, that's that that doesn't really do do much in my world or yours. It's really, you know, 
how significant is this? You know, what are the winners and losers going to look like? And then how do we, as, as deal professionals, position ourselves to provide the services to our clients that we would like to provide going forward? What are they going to be doing and what are we going to be doing to help them? What were some of the steps that were taken or not taken in the wake of 2008-2009 that served to be lessons for investors and deal makers now? Well, one of the things that really struck me about 08 and 09 was that the dramatic shift in sentiment, particularly in the financial services industries, but really across the board, was was so significant that uh, it really created a lot of opportunities. And when we look at 08 and 09, at least when I look back at 08 and 09, there's a lot of writing about the folks that predicted to some degree the crash in the decline in real estate prices, the resulting impact it would have on all sorts of different financial products that were associated with real estate. So, you know, we focus on books like um, The Big Short, right? And I think the movie that came out about the same, same events, you look at you know, folks like Kyle Bass and others who've been Paulson, and there's a bunch of folks that figured out how to make some very timely bets before the crisis to, to profit from the, from the decline. But I think there's been a lot less in the way of press devoted to the folks that came in. I can't remember who the famous investor is that said, you know, the best time to buy is when there's blood in the streets, right? So yeah. there's certainly blood in the streets in 08 and 09. And some people were able to take advantage of that opportunity and make some pretty significant gains. So, you know, in the article, for example, I talk about Oak Tree went in and they put a really significant multi-billion dollar bet on corporate debt. And, you know, one of the co-chief investment officers of Oak Tree, I guess, was quoted as saying, look, this is either the greatest buying opportunity in my career or the world is going to end. And he kind of reasoned if the world was going to end, he'd have bigger problems anyway. So he decided to take advantage of the buying opportunity on behalf of his clients and did quite well. And there's a couple of other examples of, of people that made uh, investment professionals have made very timely bets. Um, I think Leonard Green had made a minority investment in Whole Foods again. And there was, I think the, the other one that was significant uh, and it was reported by the New York Times is that is essentially the one of the not, if not the, the biggest um, wins in, in private equity history was, was this bet Apollo made on, on the, the chemical company. And, uh, what I, I think is so interesting to me about both both of those moves is that these were completely out of the financial services sector. These were just folks that took advantage of of an opportunity that presented itself because of the crisis, right? I mean, it was Leonard Green had an opportunity to come into Whole Foods, presumably did the analysis and, and determined that this was this was a good time to get in at the right price. Similarly, Apollo. Apollo's was interesting because it was a distressed transaction and that they went out and acquired uh, a lot of discounted debt and then pushed that company, which is the third largest chemical company in the, on the planet, pushed them through a bankruptcy and then came out with an enormous return when, when they converted their bonds into equity. So to me, that was really you know, the reason for the article. It's like, hey, COVID-19 has everybody inside you know, doing Zoom happy hours and and learning how learning French or whatever it is that you do when you have downtime. But let's think about what's going to happen. Let let the talking heads deal with good versus bad policy. You know what's going to happen in the world and how our deal deal makers and deal professionals going to going to cope with it. What's going to happen next? And that's that's where it really struck me that you know the 
unsung song of 08 and 09 are the people that came in, went long at the bottom, and really profited. Everybody's heard about the big short, people that went short at the top and took it all the way down, but you don't hear nearly as much about the people that came in and, and, and saw the opportunities. And so it just strikes me that we're going to start seeing people making moves because they're going to see those opportunities. No, I think the other uh, uh, contrast with the, the last recession, and I, I, I'm stealing this from somebody else, but the last recession, you know, there were all these opportunities, but nobody had money. Now we've got mm-hmm. a lot of money and we're waiting to see where the opportunities are. I mean, this was not an issue in the financial structure sure. of the financial system or anything. And in the areas that you and I both work with, with private equity, there were articles about their trillions, plural, of dry powder that had been accumulating and they're waiting to deploy it. Well, that didn't disappear. I mean, they, they're right. expending more resources to support their portfolio companies, but they still have quite a bit. So I think it's just, they're going to start finding things at the right price. And I, I sincerely believe private equity is going to be the ones that lead us out. I also think that, uh, you know, even looking back at those uh, ventures that were tried, I mean, they were multi-billion dollar investments. And back then a billion dollars was uh, still pretty significant. Now, yeah. you know, you, you've got, you got companies doing that on a strategic acquisition and it, it's no big whoop. So um, sure. there are those, those types of things out there. And also, I just think that, um, as you said, all the focus was on the people that shorted and watch everything go go down, whereas every you know a lot of smart money was coming in, you know, buying up things at a discount. Uh, I'd also point to just recently in Silicon Valley, there has been just short of a billion dollars being raised by companies, multiple companies, five or ten a day, but it's totaling seven hundred to a billion dollars for the last five days, last two weeks. So. Companies are raising money. There is activity that's happening. And so if you fall into the trap of, like you said, listening to talking heads or all the other noise out there, you're going to join the group out there and start getting depressed. Whereas if you focus on these opportunities, I sincerely believe they're out there. And, you know, there's just going to be more. You just have to look for it. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, I would also just observe and I I tried to mention the article, right? It's, It's it's easy to draw analogies or parallels, but sometimes you can take it too far. And the financial crisis was just that, right? It was a financial crisis that was driven by, you know, the precipitous decline in real estate prices. And, you know, as it, it had that sort of snowball effect. And here, COVID-19 is still COVID-19, right? It's still a pandemic. The virus is still out there. And, and in fact, what hadn't happened at the time I wrote my article, but of course has happened since, <clears throat> is, is, you know, the stuff out of Minneapolis, right? George Floyd, the protests, and, and all, you know, the focus on, on police brutality and minority rights. And, and, you know, these are all, again, very, very good things and worthy to be talked about. What I think COVID and some of these other things now uh, sort of amplify potentially at least, is, is the, the, the legal risk, if you will, the regulatory landscape. We don't know, for example, whether you know, private equity funds that have portfolio companies that took uh, uh, relief loans from the government, are, is, uh, is there going to be a law that tries to attach some sort of penalty? There's already been some, some public shaming, if you will, of, of folks that have larger financial backers 
you know, taking some of these relief loans, are are you going to see something along the lines of, you know, the Congress tries to, you know, once again deal with, you know, screwing around with the carried interest and how it's taxed or something that they want to do in order to try to, in their minds at least, level the playing field is between the, you know, the the private equity professionals, you know, the the top one percenters as they'll probably call it, and and the entrepreneurs. So I think that's actually where things get a little more dicey is goalposts are going to start moving and we really don't know exactly how that's going to shake out. Right. Yeah. Well, what are you telling your clients? If, if there are the, those that are anticipating or look, we're looking for uh, an acquisition target uh, or weren't looking before, but now are, what are you, what are you telling them? Well, I think the nice thing about it is when you're, when you're a lawyer, a lot of the stuff I'm doing is is all just for fun. It's not like people come to me for my economic advice. But the what what, what I'm what I'm telling people is to is to essentially what I've told people in good times and in bad, which is still be prudent, right? I mean, in other words, the everybody that's that's out there and and has looked at deals and has analyzed deals has has been trained to look for the variables and handicap those. Right. And so we're in a situation that's certainly uncharted territory to most of us. I mean, I don't think the, you know, the, the, the quarantines, the shutdowns, love them or hate them. I mean, I'll let other people talk about that, but certainly it's one of the most, if not the most significant responses to an event that we've seen in peacetime in our history of our country. Right. Mm-hmm. So big things have happened and it's causing disruption. And what I, what I tell clients and, and anybody else, who is interested in my opinion, it's simply to say opportunities are always created in this environment, right? And that's that's really what the lesson was from 08 and 09. It wasn't just the opportunities that were created before the event, but there's opportunities created in the event. And and so you have to look at whether, you know, you can acquire debt positions in order to gain a controlling interest in a target or whether, you know, you can, you can, you can make a, a, a strategic acquisition, provide liquidity to to somebody in your supply chain, whether you can, there's a whole bunch of different things that people can and will look at in these types of environments. And so, um, and, and it's, you know, it's a, it's a good time to do it. And people who have that dry powder, as you mentioned, the private equity funds, I do think they are, you know, I doubt that they're just going on vacation waiting for it all to end. I think the good ones are already looking to see how can we benefit from this? How can we lead us out of this crisis? Well, and the other thing this highlights to us just when, when we get a big disruption like this and a shock to the system is suddenly people start worrying about risk again. Of they, course. They, they, it's your world. <laughs> sudden, suddenly those antennae go out a little bit and they're, they're a, little, a little worried about it. And so uh, when they used to not worry about risk and figure I'm an entrepreneur and we're going to go and, you know, Gonna hang and bang with them, and and you know, good things will happen if we think positive. Now, I think there's going to be more of a focus and some value is associated with transferring some risk or limiting risk, however you can do it. And there, I bring that up because there's a lot of what we do in our practice with rep and warranty insurance is we remove the risk uh, exposure between buyers and sellers and transfer the risk that they have to a third party, which is an insurance company. And in Almost every case, the insurance company has deeper pockets than both players combined. So it's a real safe place to go ahead and transfer risk. 
because of your practice with M&A, share with me whatever experience, good, bad, or indifferent, you've had with rep and warranty on deals. You know, we do a lot of M&A in the middle market space. We've been particularly active in cannabis in recent months. And as you and I have talked about right now, M&A insurance or rep and warranty insurance isn't an option in the cannabis space, but but likely with some legal changes and regulatory changes will will start to become an option. So in those deals, obviously we're not looking at M or not looking at rep and warranty insurance and we're just dealing with everything your tip your old fashioned way, right? Just hyper focused on the language of the reps, hyper focused on the schedules and the indemnities and the baskets and caps and escrows if they're escrows and that sort of thing. In in non-cannabis, dealt with uh, rep and warranty insurance a handful of times in recent years, and the my experience has frankly been, I would say, uh, guardedly positive. And the only reason I say guardedly positive is I have actually personally never on 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 one of my transactions where I was lead counsel, I've never had occasion to make a claim against a, you know against a, a, a an insurer. So perhaps that's because my team is very still very focused on schedules and making sure that you know when when they make reps and warranties they're not going to create a scenario where there's there's actually uh any 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 reason to have a claim so so perhaps that's um i don't know if that's good or bad but my my experience has generally been been positive in that the as long as you get in early you talk about the rep and warranty policy and how it works. In my experience, it was actually, I think in all cases, it was a, a private equity relationship that was driving the, driving the, the, the rep, insur- rep and warranty insurance. But as long as you get in early and you, you, you work the process, it, it, it hasn't slowed down deals. It's, you know, everything has worked out the way it's supposed to. I think your industry is getting it, starting to get it right. Oh, I appreciate it. There are two big points that you had in that, in that response. Uh, the importance of introducing the concept of rep and warranty as early as possible in the deal. I mean, it can always be removed. I mean, my, my, my wife does that all the time where she'll order a bunch of stuff. She's like, we can always remove it. So don't worry about it. So it and right. it's, it just slows down the deal. If all of a sudden you're, you know, 10 yards from the goal line and now, well, let's introduce this new process that the parties might be unfamiliar with. And so the, the sooner you do it, the better. So that that's usually helpful. Yeah. The other side, on a, on, on a claim side, I'm, I'm pleased you haven't had one. Um, the one thing that's fearful for us insurance people is in order for, you know, the policy to quote unquote work, uh, a claim has to, ha- has to hit, has to get paid. That means something bad's got to happen. And so we, right. while we, we stand by, you know, the, all the reports so far is, is that uh, rep and warranty and actually cyber liability insurance are the two insurance products that really deliver on the claims, payment, less hassle and all that. So they've had a very, very solid track record, which is good. But at the end of the day, I always kind of like where, well, I'd rather have an incident be reported and the client's like, well, it, it amounted to nothing. Eventually it turned out it was okay. But boy, I felt good that I had this behind me just in case. So it, it's kind of it's nice that way. Um, well, let me, uh, yeah. if I can cut in real quick, Patrick. So I think what I would say um, is it, it's always important in in a in a in a major transaction, and you know, as an aside, I think when you're doing M and A, for most of us, if it's in the middle market, it's it's a major transaction. 
for your client, even if even if it's not necessarily a major transaction for your firm, right? I mean, yeah. generally speaking, these entrepreneurs, this is their business. This is the this is their this is their their recent life's work, if not their entire life's work. And so, so for them, rep and warranty insurance is is a significant um, benefit to them to just sleep better at night, knowing that their deal is closed and they have something behind them. If some they have an insurer behind them, if something goes wrong. For deal professionals, I think the, the real key is interacting with experienced folks like you when it comes to products like this, because even though I've done it a number of times in my conversations with you, I've learned more about it and how it works. And and you really, I think you need a, a, a user-friendly professional to, to help keep that piece of the deal on track, right? Because again, it, it's, it's one of those things where the deal professionals don't necessarily think of it as they don't they don't they don't plug the insurers into the whole deal they do their deal and then they like to sort of dump it all on the on the insurers but 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 the reality is is if you're if you're on a deal team and you're and you're getting a deal done you got to loop in those folks early and and proactively because then number one you don't have any surprises number two you have a better product. In other words, you have a much higher likelihood of a, of a successful claim if one needs to be made. And then number three, you don't have any problems getting the deal done, right? You don't, you don't run into any issues uh, at the 11th hour that cause you to have to delay closing or reprice or do whatever. So, so that's, that's, that's what I think is the, the good reminder for entrepreneurs is, you know, it, rep and warranty insurance in particular, highly specialized, it's a it's a niche market, and and you you need to have the experienced professionals helping you, and it's 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 worth the investment, and it's worth you know getting them on the phone early. I'm going to stop it there and just say I couldn't say that any better. So we'll we'll <laughs> sure. go with that. Those are words to live by, folks. And Sandra, as we're going through, we've had this you know selling place now for a while. We've been seeing it kind of as we're recording this. We we're opening up and then we're having some, you know, we're stubbing our toes, you know, Texas in particular and some other places uh, as the rollout is, isn't going as planned and, uh, you know, cases are rising. So there's a lot of fear out there. You know, give me your, your idea just based, based on where we are today. And this is mid, midway through 2020. What do you see for m and I think it's going to accelerate for sure. Um, I think Look, you know, you had uh, you had at least one pretty sizable transaction that was reported. You're in the gig economy space, and you're delivering product to people that are holed up in their homes right now. Your your valuation has certainly benefited from this, right? And you know, the the DoorDashes and the like. The like it or not, as as hard as it will be for our our policymakers, will try to create rules to mitigate this, but there will be winners and losers. And there always are in these sorts of things. It's just an unfortunate fact of life. And so I think when it's amplified like this, and this one, I, I, I don't think I've seen anything amplified to this degree, right? I mean, if you're a Spinal Tap fan, right, this one goes to 11. Yeah. This is, this yeah. is, uh, this is going to be because, only because, you know, major the world's major economies just stopped for a couple months, right? And even as we get back moving again, it's 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 very uh, it's 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 very uneven in how it's how it's happening, and and there are likely to be 
additional additional waves of the virus, right? There's, it's likely, from what I've read, there's seasonality, and like I said earlier, I think there's going to be a lot of a lot of tinkering with the law. So, to me, what what would be, what would slow things down is legal and regulatory uncertainty, because certainly, if you're a private equity fund, you got money, you're looking around, you just want to make sure that you don't do something that turns out, to, in hindsight, with legal or regulatory changes, to be a really dumb move. But I think what is what is driving it is frankly just going to be pure necessity. I mean, things are so different now. You know, huge numbers of of tenants, both residential and retail, haven't paid their rent in the last X mm-hmm. number of months. Um, you you have unde- you have a huge number of debt payments that have been missed. You've got a lot of very significant bankruptcies. I read that Microsoft is going to close virtually all of their retail stores. Um, you can just see how this stuff starts to ripple, and and so you will have you will have folks that can come in and buy an asset that has been devalued temporarily, and I, I think it's it's they're, they're not all going to be you know record setting valuation deals, but I think the volume is going to is going to go up significantly, probably starting in Q3, but certainly by Q4, I got to think we're going to be just seeing a whole lot of action, as will you. Right. Yeah. It's just looking at the macro aspect of it. Right. I mean, because, again, you're going to see a lot of we're seeing big bankruptcies already, a number of significant ones. Right. And so those are going to be dealt with in some degree, which which will which will involve significant strategic transactions, whether it's M&A or something else. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's so to me, it's so big. It's so significant. It really. It, it, it affects virtually everybody, right? Virtually all companies are going to be affected to some degree. And so the question is, do they, do they just sit still and wait it out? Some will, but I think a lot of others will realize that they have to either combine with somebody, shed some, some weight, right? There, mm-hmm. A lot of stuff is going to have to happen because it's just so significant. It really isn't going to be an option to wait it out for a lot of folks. There are companies that are good before pandemic they're probably going to be really good after. And coming from California, where, where you guys are and up here in Silicon Valley, I mean, literally every company here is for sale. And it's just a matter of time and, and it's going to come around. So uh, we will see what happens. But Sandra, again, I greatly appreciate uh, the, the, the piece that you put and, and just great perspectives here. And it's always nice hearing you know, from a variety of, of forward thinkers out there. Now, how can our audience find you? Sure. Well, and by the way, thank you for, for, for reading it and paying attention. It's always nice to know I'm not, not just writing to, uh, <laughs> writing to an empty audience, right? I have, I have at least one fan. Um, listeners can find me uh, uh, certainly at our website, uh, Greenspoon Martyr. Just Google Greenspoon Martyr or go to gmlaw.com. Uh, first name Sander, last name Zagzebski with a Z, Z-A-G-Z-E-B-S-K-I. So listeners, it's not too hard to find me on the, on the, on, on the website. And then you can also, you can reach me by phone, 323-880-4525 is my office line. Email is sander.zagzebski at gmlaw.com. I think I've given you everything. But the easiest way is just to get online. That's how you find everybody these days. If you went to the website and they looked up attorneys by name, are you the only Z in your office? No, no. Look, we have 240 lawyers, so I think we have four or five people with Z's. Okay. Um, 
actually my uh, uh, the head of our entertainment practice in Miami, Leslie Siegel, is actually mm-hmm. behind me. I can't even say I'm the last person on the list. But uh, yeah, if you if you click on the the Z on the far right, you know you're not gonna you'll you'll find me pretty pretty fast. I'm in Los Angeles, so uh, you know run the the corporate practice on the West Coast, and you know M and A strategic transactions that private equity venture that's our life right that's what we're what's what we're doing we're not going to stop doing it just because times have gotten tough because a, a, a number of the folks in our office including myself have done quite a bit of deal making when times are tough and i think i think you you will too patrick because it's it's uh you know your your world m&a you know in the m&a world rep and warranty insurance is 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 kind of become the standard for certain types of deals and the only thing i would say to your listeners is because I've I've sort of made this mistake myself, and you you kind of you you called me out on it a little bit. Is it's it's not the the product is getting is getting good enough, and the process is getting efficient enough that it it makes sense for for deals that are much smaller in size than you know we would have considered reference warranty insurance for say two three years ago, right? So so if you got any deal that's that's over, what would you say people should call you if the deal's over twenty million, or what's the over over ten million. Over ten million. Over yeah. ten. I mean, it's it's that small. And there you go. Saving on a five hundred thousand or a million dollar escrow by having a policy instead. That's a lot more for Absolutely. some than on a hundred million dollar deal. No, hundred percent. And I think it. I think it smooths things out, right? It 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 it's it's a it's it it doesn't obviously eliminate the need to have good deal professionals put the deal together. Certainly. As with anything in insurance, you'd rather not be making a claim than having to make a claim, um, and and so you still need to run through the process. But your clients, in particular, will will love having that assurance. And my experience has been the private equity folks have embraced it, and since they set they tend to set the deal terms for the industry and determine what's quote unquote market or quote unquote standard. It's now de facto standard for deals that are you know in the middle market range. Great. Sander, absolute pleasure having you. We'll be talking again. Sounds good. Thanks, Patrick.